1: Hey there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Samantha, one of your hosts today.
2: And I'm Renee, a new guest host here at Life Out Loud. Excited to hear all of your stories and later in the interviews, your thoughts. And I'm Karen,
3: back again and ready to get into our fourth episode of the third season entitled a Friend of Mine.
2: And I'm
4: Anita. This episode is all about how three young authors navigate through unique sets of circumstances
3: within a series of friendships. Some of these stories contain content warnings before we begin for various disturbing topics. At Life Out Loud, we seek to share truths from the lives of young authors, and the truth is sometimes ugly. We started a new page on the website for anyone who wants to explore options for aid with whatever circumstances they're dealing with. The list is currently small, but we'll be growing it to cover even more subjects very soon, and we hope this helps for now. To visit, go to lifeoutloudpodcast.com resources.
2: Our first piece of the night is by a new author to Life Out Loud, Drew Feliciano. Drew Feliciano is a senior
3: at John Jay with a major in political science and a minor in English. He considers himself a writer at heart, and he has a strong passion for journalism. He's editor-in-chief of the John Jay Sentinel and can't wait to graduate
1: in 2018. Content warning for discussions on disturbing topics.
2: Listener discretion is advised. Thank you, Samantha and Karen. Let's take a listen to Drew's piece.
5: Another day, another goddamn dollar, I think, as I stroll to meet up with the others. The sun is scathing and the sky is bearing it all, not a cloud in sight. I fucking hate the boy camps. They just come here in packs, annoy us, and then shit on the floor. It's my second year working at this crappy water park in Keensburg, NJ, a place where we find it dildos in the lazy river and kids just shit on the floor. I inwardly groan as my journey to the tiny excuse for a parking lot comes to an end. I find my group of fellow delinquents gathered around the hood of my friend Ian's car. Two of my friends, Ian and Randy, are sitting on the hood. I'm a bit afraid that the old Honda with over 200,000 miles won't hold their weight. Where were you, man? Randy asks. We need to be back in like 30 minutes for when the kid shows up. I'm here now, aren't I? Besides, we'll be fine. Taco Bell is deadass five minutes away. What's the worst that can happen, I say. That's when I notice that there's a newcomer to our tiny work squad. We make awkward eye contact and nod, but don't exchange any words. Ian walks around to the driver's side and enters the car. We all walk to our designated seats and squeeze ourselves into the tiny vehicle. Of course, I'm stuck in the middle between my bulky friend Chris and the new guy who has yet to be named. Oh guys, this is Ritsky, Ian says, as he points to the now-named individual with bleached blonde hair who I'm squashed up against. He also goes to high school with us. By us, Ian means they all go to high school together. I no longer go to school with them. While I had gone to school with the others from kindergarten to eighth grade, my parents decided to move me to a Catholic school for behavioral reasons. That didn't stop me from hanging out with the same ridiculous hooligans I hung out with before, though. Yeah, I know Ritsky. He's on the wrestling team with me, Chris says, as he chomps down on some Cheetos, talking about this kid like he's not even there. His first name is John, but everyone seems to address him by his last name. As we all put our seatbelts on, Ian turns the car on and starts our journey. Luckily, I'm handed the aux cord for the five-minute ride. I can't fail to disappoint. So I did what any logical, somewhat brown man would do in a white suburb. I put on some Waka Flocka and tell them to put it to the max and roll the windows down. Randy, of course, isn't happy with the choice of music, but I could care less. This is lit, Risky says. I can already tell you're a good person, bro, I say. We continue down the road until we get to the Taco Bell drive through The ordering process is a blur. We're all starstruck by the idea of eating a Crunchwrap Supreme on our break. We know we have to hurry back, though. As the only person in the car whose parents would actually care if he was arrested, I'm now figuratively and almost literally shitting my pants. Ah, shit. Oh, fuck. God damn it. L. Someone put on Fuck the Police by NWA, quick! We all wonder where that random exclamation came from. We all look towards Ritsky's direction to see a mischievous smile. What? He says sheepishly, still smiling. That's a good song. Ritzky and I are going to get along just fine. Like an out-of-shape, post-pubescent Baywatch cast, we all sprint to our posts when we get back. The hordes of screaming animals are waiting outside, ready to shit all over already, shitty water park. The camps are here. I make my way at water glistening on my dad bod, even though I'm not a dad, to the worst spot to guard in the park. Not only must one guard watch two slides at once here, but there's also a bucket above your head that periodically empties itself all over you every other minute for the entire two-hour shift. Green. That's what we call it. It's a never-ending onslaught of screeching children asking, Can I go down the slide now? And one of us responding with, I genuinely don't care. Do what you want. It's a free country, kid. Or at least that's how it usually played out. It all depended on who was at the back of the kitty section, where the two slides ended. Who's there today? I wonder. Not sure what I can get away with today. I look down at the kitty section at a guard I've never seen here before. It's the kid with the bleached hair, the kid with the good taste in music. Ritsky. Hey, bro, what's up? So, how strict of a guard are you? I yelled down. This strict, he says, as he takes off his guard tube, tosses it on the ground, and walks out of his area toward the vending machines. He returns with an ice cream sandwich in hand and a no-shits given swagger. If it weren't for the fact that the water at the back of the kiddie section is no deeper than four inches, I'd be worried for the kids, but they're fine. Again, I can already tell that me and this kid are going to get along just fine. The onslaught of Endless children are now in full force. Children, please exit the slide in an orderly fashion, I hear Ritsky say in a Terminator impression voice. For the next round, I send down three kids at once, down a single slide. Something we're definitely not supposed to do. This is nothing, though. In the kiddie section, the guards keep records of how many kids they can get down a slide at once during the camp's visits. The current record for green is 18 kids at once. A record held by yours truly from the previous year. Hey, man, I'm going to break the record. I yell down. I'm going for 25 at once. Do it. You won't. Ritzky yells back up. Oh, yeah. Watch this. Na 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 na. Oh, fuck. Na 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 na. Oh, God damn it. What did I do? Hey, hey, hey. Oh, God, I'm going to get sued. Goodbye. Yeah, I'm getting fired tonight. As I look down at my accomplishment, I realize that is not the masterpiece I'd expected. It was a shit show. Instead of letting 25 kids down one slide, I accidentally let 36 down. Now they're standing, chanting, jumping, and singing on the slide. This was not supposed to happen. They were supposed to just stay seated. I look around to see which manager is going to fire me. In the distance, I see one of them, Frank, on a radio, urgently heading towards my direction. I blow my whistle multiple times at the heathens to no avail. The only other thing I can hear over the victory celebrations of the demon children are the cackles of Ritzky, watching the disaster from down below. He's watching to make sure no one drowns, that I can tell, but he's also cracking up, not worried at all. This was the day Ritsky and I became friends. Part 2. A few months later. Winter is trash, bro, I say while closing his window and proceeding to lock all of them. Ritsky just lost his window privileges. You're just a bitch, Ritsky responds. We're driving from fast food place to fast food place, a staple activity for young people in dull, homogenous suburban America. It's also a favorite activity amongst my friends and I in Monmouth County, New Jersey. We decide to go to Chris's house. We're pretty lit, actually. (laughs) Looks like I'm not driving home. Responsible adult achievement unlocked, I think to myself. We've had a bit to drink, and it's safe to say my underage ass can't drive considering I can barely fucking walk. Yeah, Chris says, I don't really know how my mom would handle me bringing a prostitute home for dinner, man. I don't want her to lie about her career choice, but at the same time, I'm 17, so I don't think I'm old enough to bring home sex workers yet. Same. Ritsky and I agree. We're sitting in Chris's room drinking and playing Xbox and Nintendo. It's a welcome sanctuary away from the harsh cold outside. My life's already fucked up enough, I slur. I don't need anything that may make it more complicated. I'm so fucked in the head, I honestly don't even know how my parents deal with me. The negatives seem to far outweigh the positives on my end. Hey man, Ritsky says, at least you don't wish you were a girl all the time. What do you mean? I ask, a bit puzzled. I have gender dysphoria, he answers matter-of-factly, on top of the ridiculousness that comes along with bipolar disorder. Hey, bipolar disorder, mi gente, what's up? I respond, focusing on the part of this I can actually understand. I got that too, shit blows. Yeah, it makes me literally want to kill myself half the time, Ritsky laughs. We all laugh, but I can see the emptiness left in the wake of it. I wonder if anyone else feels it. Ritsky's hurting. I realized that night, bad. The room takes on a somber tone. My own smile starts to fade, and so I mash the buttons on the controller, not really even thinking about the game. After some silence, I say, Yeah, man, I've been there. It's no joke. Are you medicated too? Yeah, Ritsky responds. Right now I'm in the experimental pill bottle phase. They're kind of just throwing pills into me and hoping for the best. We'll see how it all works out, he laughs and shrugs. He'll know if it didn't work if they find me dead somewhere. We all keep playing, the liquor flowing through our veins like normal. But that night, as we sit in the entrancing limelight of the TV, I wonder, what's going to happen to us? (sighs) Hey guys, Risky texts to the group chat. I'm not going to be around for a few weeks. The doc said too much cutting isn't good for my health, apparently. Don't worry, they'll patch me up good as new, and I'll be on my way and back for some fuckery. A few months later, spring 2014. Yo, are we gonna ride Kingda Ka? That shit looks dope, I say. The large green track towers over all of the other roller coasters and can be seen from miles around. As Ritzky, James, Nolan, and I walk towards the Great Adventure entrance, we find a group of abandoned roller coaster cars resting near the side of the gate. Ritzky runs over to jump into them, hops in, and yells, Wait, can one of you guys take a picture of me? Yeah, I got you, man, I say. I pull out my camera, and I'm rewarded with a comical picture of him throwing up deuces with something that may resemble the start of a duck face. After the picture is taken, he hops out of the rickety old roller coaster car with a smile. Today is a good day for us. The entire day is spent running from coaster to coaster, ride to ride. Most of us are heading off to college soon. Ritsky still has one year left of high school. A few weeks later, I hear from my phone as I worriedly send the next text message. This kid is going to give me a heart attack, I think to myself. Come on, bro, I text. You have to get up. You can't lay there forever, man. It's not good for you. Why should I get up, man? He responds. Who cares if I get up? Who cares if I never get up? It won't matter. I'm a piece of shit. At least here on the floor, I'm not bothering anyone. You see how much I fuck up? In and out of the hospital and shit? LOL, it's not even worth it, man. I'm going to end up dead at some point anyways, Ritsky says. I do, man, I say. Don't make me come over there, bro, because you know I will take my ass to your doorstep and start banging on the door. I don't give a fuck, man. So I'm going to roll through, and your ass is going to be outside within 10 fucking minutes, or I'm going out there banging doors and waking the whole damn house up, I say. You wouldn't, Ritzky says. Fucking try me, I respond. I'm not worth the time nor the effort, man. I do appreciate it, though, Ritzky says. Shut up, I'm on my way, I respond. Late July 2014. This is an absolutely phenomenal motion picture, I exclaim, chomping down on my bag of Sour Patch Kids. It really fucking is, Chris exclaims. For some reason, none of us are in chairs. We're almost grown-ass adults who decide to plop ourselves down on the floor directly in front of Chris's TV like kids do. Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. May I take your order? Kel Mitchell asks on screen. The acting is A-grade, bro, Ritzky says. We continue watching, enjoying each other's company. Then the song comes on. Just hanging out, just having fun. Just hanging out, just having fun. Once the hook comes, we burst into song. I'm a dude, he's a dude, she's a dude. Because we're all dudes, hey, we scream. At this point, it's about 2 in the morning. Chris's mom was super cool, so I guess she didn't really care that we were being a bit too loud. How did that song not win a fucking Grammy, though, Ritsky says in shock. That was an answer I just didn't have. Early August, 2014. Ritsky just got his license, and we want to treat ourselves to some good food for once. We're Chipotle-bound, going 95 down the parkway, blasting Lil Wayne. The song's hook is oddly fitting for us both. Whether it be drinking, smoking, or fast food, we're always able to find a temporary escape from our problems. Lonely once the drugs are done, the hook says. That I feel like dying, I feel like dying. Bro, I'm fucking starving, I groan. We'll get there in like 10 minutes. I'm fucking flying, Risky responds. The windows are down, and the warm evening breeze is pounding my face. I look out on the parkway. The endless rows of trees blow in the wind. Garden State Parkway South, an endless road through a sea of green. In a couple of months, the leaves would start changing color, and the parkway would look more like a coral reef. So how you feeling, man? I ask. What do you mean? He says. You know, with everything going on, I continue. Ah, who knows? I'm always going to be fucked up, man, he says, eyes on the road. I sigh loudly, however not loud enough for him to hear it. He's at least getting help now, I think to myself. I know that, but what else can I do? Man, he continues, I'm a suicidal, bipolar, bisexual boy who wishes he were a girl, he says. I'll never not be fucked up in the head. He says it so matter-of-factly. "'Have you ever thought of going through with the transition?' I ask. "'Who knows, man. I really don't know. "'They call it gender dysphoria. "'Apparently it's an illness,' he says, looking conflicted. "'Well, either way, you know I got you,' I say. "'You're the homie no matter what. "'So you do what you gotta do.'" August twenty seventh, 2014. "'Okay,' Ritzky plans. "'So we're going to try and find this exotic type of noodle.'" I kind of have an idea what it looks like, but no idea what it's called. It's red, I know that, Ritsky says as we enter the noodle aisle of an exotic Asian food store. He's excited about this, I can tell. John, his dad exclaims, you can't just bring people on these trips like this when you have no idea what you're looking for. You drag us all out here just to look for some damn noodles that you won't even be able to identify because I know for a fact you only speak and read English. It's fine, Mr. Ritzky, I say. I don't mind. I truly don't have anything better to do, so I'm always down to explore. His dad smiles and walks off into a different aisle to find Ritzky's younger brother. We continue our journey through the store until eventually we end up in the candy aisle. By this point, we lost all hope regarding the noodles of legend that Ritsky had described to me. Yo, Ritsky says, these candies are fucking amazing, bro. He says as he shows me a package that reads, pochi. I'm not the biggest candy person, I say, but I'm willing to try it. He pulls one out of the pack for me to try before we're even at the register. I'm buying it whether you like it or not, he says, so we're not really stealing anything. I laugh and try the candy. It's a bit too sweet for me, but nevertheless, I'm happy I tried it. Since we have nothing to make from the exotic Asian food store, we end up going out for some good old Taco Bell again. It's been a while since we've been there. Bro, I ask. Why do you put the sauce on the outside of the crunchwrap? Why, bruh? I'm actually getting pretty annoyed about it. What are you, a fucking cop? I don't tell you how to live your life, he responds, taking his first savory bite of his wrap. I smile. Tomorrow is my first day of college. Part 3. September 1st, 2014. I'm mashing on the right button of my mouse, little by little, taking the enemy player down. The chair creaks as I move my face closer and closer to the screen. As if the closer I am to the monitor, the better my chances of the phone rings. That's weird, I think to myself. Sean's away at college in Pennsylvania. Why would he be calling me today at this time? I mean, even for him, it's too early to be under the influence. I reluctantly pick up the phone to see what type of ridiculousness he's gotten himself into this time, already ready to laugh. Andrew, oh my god, man, it's risky. I freeze. He jumped in front of the train, bro. He jumped in front of the fucking train, he says. No, he didn't just make a fucking joke like this. No, he didn't, I laugh. He he didn't, I think to myself. Sean starts sobbing. While I start Googling, Hazlitt Train Station NJ, I type into the search bar. Before I even finish, it pops up. Hazlitt Teen Killed After Stepping Into Path of Train. I try to think of who to call, what to... I'm alone, I need to... I pick up my phone to see it flooded with notifications. Condolences fly at me through Facebook, text messages, Instagram, and countless numbers. I... Drake says, I never actually am alone. I just always feel alone. My friend is dead, and I will never see him again. And he died alone. How could I let this happen? I think to myself, I just fucking saw him. I just saw him. He, he could have fucking called. I would have been there. Middle of the fucking night, no problem. Why didn't he just call? Epilogue. A few days later. The funeral parlor is filled with people from all over the county. Everyone is dressed in black, exchanging solemn nods and glances amongst each other. I get in line with Sean behind all the other mourners. I have no more tears to cry, only shallow smiles for shallow greetings. Hey man, remember the time you put a whole pack of cigs in his mouth and decided to light it up? I ask Sean. Yes, Sean responds. You know... I wanted to take him with me to the city to show him Midtown Comics. Him and I love going to the comic store, and I bet he would have been in heaven seeing how big it is, I say. I would have loved to. Tears are streaming down my face. We're all left there sobbing, sobbing with one best friend while the other is laid in his final resting place. There's no stopping the onslaught of emotions. Guilt, anger, hopelessness, they all come pouring out. As I slowly approach the casket, I see his parents greeting mourners. When I approach his parents, I greet them with a hug. I'm shaking in their arms, apologizing for not saving their son. You got to know him, his dad says through dreary eyes. Remember those good times, okay? Putting my hand on his casket brings me no closure. I continue sobbing. It only brings more pain. I think of the time he watched Good Burger only a few weeks back. How we both sang that song together out loud, screaming at 2 a.m. I'm a dude. He's a dude. She's a dude. Because we're all dudes, hey. It hurts. Goodbye, John.
3: This story, it's, 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 it's... <laughs> Um, it's, it's very difficult to hear, but also very wonderful because it's keeping this person's, it's really keeping this person's life known, which is really special. Thank you, Drew, for, for sharing that with us. And really quickly, before we get into it, we want you to know that if you or someone you know is an LGBTQIA plus person affected by the thoughts of suicide, please visit our resources tab on our website for a list of local and national resources to help. And again, thank you, Drew.
5: No, thank you for having me.
2: When everyone is playing video games at Chris's house, Ritsky reveals his illnesses to everyone, and you share that you also suffer from mental illness. You write, I have gender dysphoria on top of the ridiculousness that comes along with bipolar disorder, Ritsky says, matter-of-factly. Hey, bipolar disorder. Mi gente, was up? I respond, focusing on the part of this I can really understand. I got that too. Shit blows. How's your experience with mental illness and suicide impacted your journey with mental illness based off of Ritzky's experience with you
5: I guess it was it was a little different because mine his happened he started to experience things when he was i guess 16 17 at the time mm-hmm. i started to experience things closer to 14 15 and i was a year older than him so yeah. by the time all this occurred i was better and i was stable i've been stable probably since 15 or 16 right so
2: so you were kind of a guiding force i i
5: I tried i want my goal of course he was a friend he was a friend right right um but i also since i could relate i wanted to try and take him under my wing Mm -hmm. it might not have worked but it was something I, i i wanted to try and do too especially since it was somebody i cared about you know it's a good friend
2: yeah of course and I mean, you can't take on that kind of responsibility for another person. But yeah. of course, it's great if you have an experience that you can share that might help, you know, yeah. help him. And it it seemed like from what you wrote that you were quite a great support to him. So yeah. I don't think you should think it didn't work. I,
5: I think it's, I think it's difficult because I do know I can't take responsibility for actions like that, especially when somebody's ill. Like I'm, I'm not a medical professional. I'm yeah. just a friend trying to help out, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, I'm the type of person that I will go and do that for my friends. Like, Mm. I I genuinely will worry about them. Like, whether it be mental illness or drugs or whatever, like, I I want to be there. I guess it's just kind of the way I am. And Mm. even if it wasn't my responsibility, back then when this all happened, I definitely felt not responsible, but like, I could have done more. When I couldn't now I know that of course. i I did what I could have yeah. done
2: well in, in, in the in the time you know it's all very raw and very fresh and yeah. I think it's a very natural um reaction to just want to take you know responsibility find fault find a reason why yeah you know
5: it's it I, I mean I think it was a lot of reasons why it happened mm-hmm. um the main driving factor was mental illness that I know Mm -hmm. I can I'm guaranteed about that yeah but it's like there's a lot of other issues he also dealt with that I detailed in the piece I think part of what I've tried to do is not really wonder why anymore like Mm -hmm. before I used to but um I guess it's more just like now I still miss my friend and it's still to this day kind of shocks me because of the age and the circumstance right but I think I've, I don't want to say moved on because I won't ever forget him. And of course, moving on isn't always forgetting the person. I let me say that first. You, but yeah. I think it's more that I'm more at peace with the situation.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. Yeah. Did you and uh, Ritzky ever have a conversation about like pronouns? Did Ritsky ever want to be called something he, else?
5: No, not because, mainly because he was never, he never got to the stage of transitioning. So, there was never that discussion never happened if if he didn't pass, I think eventually it would have happened. One of the big problems I remember was the fact that he considered it a mental illness oh. because of what he was told and the environment mm-hmm. we were raised in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This wasn't an accepting or open or inclusive environment yeah. whatsoever. And I think, that mentality is a product of the environment. And I think as he would have started to find himself, maybe he would have, I, I, I really, I don't want to say he would have, but I will, all I want to say is I think he would have been more at peace with whoever he was or however he identified if he did survive. Right.
6: Mm
2: -hmm. Just with more, more time. I think more. Yes. I think
5: he was 17. Like he was 17, man. It's, he only, it was his senior year. Of, I actually have, I have his senior picture and it's still on my desk. Even when I moved, I, I put that in a little frame and it's on my desk. And I mean, that was uh, his, by that time, I talk about his bleached hair and the piece, but by that time that picture was taken, it was just maybe some little blonde streaks left. Wow. Um, But it's not really noticeable, but I do remember that. So it's like, I know that's just a random tangent, but...
2: No, it's no. your memory. It's, yeah. It goes along with the picture for yeah,
5: you. Yeah, it's it's definitely very it, it the experience in that friendship was still very important to me because even when I went through things, of course not on that scale at that time because I wasn't going through things on that scale at that time. I remember him saying something, for example, I was dealing with um a girl I liked and she wasn't very nice and I being young, I definitely let her take advantage of that. Um and I remember him saying <laughs> he literally said to her face he's like no fuck you he's like <laughs> he's Aww, like no fuck you he's like I'm not going to let you he's like I you're someone i care about he's like i'm not going to let her like treat you like that and she's like what um, i don't know what you're talking about he's like no fuck you like <laughs> seriously Aww, nice
4: that's a he's friend he's watching yeah, out for you, yeah. Thank you so much <laughs> and
5: that's how like i can be very blunt but that's how he was like and i I appreciated that like I because that was the type of protection I tried to show him and when he showed that back to me I knew it was like I knew that was like you know love like like friends like that was like a brother you yeah. know Yeah. and that was I think that's part of the reason why I made the loss even more you know because I realized he even admitted it and for him to admit it he was never very openly emotional right in the sense where he expresses his feelings and things like that. So when he said that, that was, I knew that was big for him and I knew he really meant it. So I think it was a lot of things like it was just so, it was a loss, man. Like it was definitely a loss.
2: Yeah. I think you can really feel that in the piece. Yeah, for sure. I love to hear you talk about male
1: friendship in this way. Um, Something that men usually don't talk about, a topic they don't talk about. And another topic they really don't talk about is mental illness. We you discuss in your piece obviously do you have any advice for males who may also be suffering from mental illnesses and finding it hard to reach out for support
5: i think it's well first of all at least from what i see especially from especially Actually, you know what? I think it's more of a universal thing. I think it is almost totally based in masculinity, which is fragile. (laughs) 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 And (laughs) and it's like, it's to me, but also keep in mind, I'm a very open person. Like I'll I'll sit down. I'm also very, I don't want to, I'm not saying this in a bragging way, but like just to describe myself, I'm very eclectic. So I like to sit down. You could talk to me about almost, anything pretty much. So with this, I do think it is a stigma and it's a, it's a stigma based in masculinity, at least from what I've seen from my personal experiences. And I think through education and I don't want to say normalizing it, but being more inclusive and accepting because there's a stigma also towards getting help. And I think at least from what I've seen, that's the, the driving factor in a lot of ways just when it comes to mental illness and against getting help, which really sometimes can be detrimental to a lot of people because they're afraid to get help or they're looked down upon. I know in a lot of different communities, actually almost every community has a certain type of stigma regarding it. Um, In the Latin community, you do see a lot sadly too, especially among the older Latinos. Machismo. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's. I think when it comes to advice, number one, invest it is investing in yourself which it's only it's never bad to get the help in this in this sense right at least when it comes to mental illness it's not Mm. bad and i think that's something that a lot of people don't realize because they're fed this false narrative of only crazy people get help only Mm. these people get help and you look stupid like just just handle it like get over it is a lot of the times what people hear you're just being emotional Mm. and i think a lot of it has to do with just, of course, awareness and education, but people not not giving into that stigma, not being afraid of it because really, number one, fuck everybody. Oh, can I?
3: Yes. we okay. okay. <laughs> <You laughs> yeah. welcome it. So
5: like, seriously though, like fuck everyone else, especially when it comes to like helping you and this is a completely self-regarding action and that does not affect other people. So it doesn't matter what they think and they need to stay out of your business. If you if there are people around you of course family is a different story but when it comes to friends let's just touch upon the topic of friends they are not real friends if they discourage you from getting help when you need it they are bad friends family is a lot more difficult it's a completely different dynamic because you're stuck with them
3: generally yeah it's so much culture and grammar. yes yes (laughs) getting them to understand is a task and a half
5: so i think there's a lot of different factors that we need to take into play when combating the stigma for mental health especially among men
3: i agree We agree.
1: that was a beautiful
4: answer yeah thank you, <laughs> thank you.
1: Yeah. yeah yeah and i was yeah.
4: just gonna think if maybe we can talk about something that you can like a person who's in the situation that's direct like you said you were talking about how when you were younger you were able to deal with it and you weren't what did you do in the moment when you felt trouble and you had no one to go to
5: I was lucky enough that I had very supportive parents mm-hmm. um, my at first they weren't very knowledgeable of certain issues like I have uh, I have ADHD also so I wasn't diagnosed until I was about fifteen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and then um, so I wasn't diagnosed until I was about 15 and then when it came to the bipolar disorder I wasn't diagnosed and I think also actually 15 they diagnosed me at the same mm-hmm. at the same time mm-hmm. so the the part I had been in therapy on and off since I was 12
6: mm-hmm. so
5: mm-hmm. I was the first time I was suicidal I think I was 12 or 13 and then my depression luckily went away. I didn't have a manic episode. I didn't have a manic episode until I was about 14 or 15. So originally they thought it was just clinical depression um and possible mixed with hormones because of the age of puberty and everything. But as I got older when I had my first manic episode, um we started to see that it was different. So I was seeing a therapist at the time and eventually got to a point where i tried to walk home from the beach about which would have been about 10 to 15 miles or so i got into a fight with my mom so i thought that was the logical thing with no water in 90 degree weather Mm -hmm. that's when we realized i remember my mom called the park rangers and and everything so they were all out looking for me i was walking on the street man like this is Sandy Hook in Jersey. I'm not sure if any of you have been there, but it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty big. And I remember walking down. I walked at least a mile and a half just in my flip flops. Mm-hmm. And I got to the checkpoint where they, have the, um, where they have the park rangers and everything, where they check everybody in. And I remember saying to my mom, I was like, I think it's time to take me to the hospital. Yeah. So she said, no, no, we're not going to do that yet. We're going to make an appointment with your therapist. We told her what happened, she recommended something more not extreme, but something that's definitely more structured to say the least, um a partial hospitalization program. So I remember August 12th of 2011, this was the end of my freshman year. Um these are dates I'll never forget. Mm. Um I remember hearing when the therapist told me that I'd have to be there Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm from 9 a.m to 3 p.m every day
3: wow. mm-hmm.
5: i remember telling my mom and this is terrible but I-, I remember telling her a couple things first of all i remember saying they had a van that would come pick you up in the morning because it's all it was a teenage program from 13 to 18 which is okay. too big of an age gap in my opinion but that's yeah. a different discussion um i remember <laughs> saying to my mom and just doing it on purpose cuz i was just angry at the world i was young i wasn't thinking you know i i still had this youth mentality where i didn't think of what i said and how it could affect other people on top of all my other issues I remember saying they're coming to take me away haha they're coming to take me away and it broke my mom's heart wow. um i regret that i i i know i wasn't in a proper place of mind but i definitely regret that and i also remember right even before that because before I was bitter about it, I remember saying, I promise I'll be good, mom. Don't send me there. Please, I'll, I'll be good. But I couldn't control my actions. Yeah. Um, but that program, I was in there for three months. I missed the first month of my sophomore year of high school. And then from partial hospitalization, you go to an intensive outpatient program or the IOP kids, we would call them. They would come in at one thirty, and they'd be there for like maybe two hours. Right. So it's like you graduate to that eventually. Mm. But I had a few things. I was there for a while because I, I don't want to say I, I, so we thought I was stable. Turns out I wasn't. So I had to go from IOP back to partial hospitalization or we just called it partial. That, experience was probably one of the most difficult experiences, if not I don't want to say it was the most, but it was one of the most difficult experiences, three months. I remember hearing the stories from the other kids just about their how they got molested by their uncles and their rapes and oh god, and it's just it it was a good learning experience because I had supportive parents and it made me really grateful because I remember talking with kids who we excited to get into group homes because they get away from their mom. Oh, like, mom. And that was, I, I think that was the best part of course with the stabilization of it. So I was lucky. The problem is there's a lot of people who still either suffer from the stigma or do not have healthcare that will pay for things like that. Because this without the healthcare I have through my, through my dad's job, I would never been able to do that yeah. without yeah. a doubt. And it did help me because they were able to monitor me and how I was feeling. And we got assigned a therapist on top of the psychiatrist there. While I hate that experience because I remember, and I'm babbling again, just stop me if, if you guys it. ever have to. Um, one of the first things on my first day I remember was the way they would make you almost like a prison when you go in empty your pockets you have to show them you have to pull out your pockets to show them all your pockets are empty like they made sure you had to put it in the cubby no foam no like they wouldn't let you bring in pens they wouldn't let you bring in like anything pretty much
2: shoelaces they weren't
5: only if it was specific so there were some um some kids who who they were afraid like may either hurt themselves or right. like possibly try and hurt somebody else but it was mainly for their own safety Of course. they would of take course. it away from certain um kids who suffered from something that may make them hurt themselves like exactly. with those um but yeah there was it was weird because i remember being f- i was 15 man like I remember being there just, I'd never felt so trapped because I knew there was no way my parents would let me out of the program. And I knew the only way it would be to just to get better and deal with it. So I guess my story, my personal story, it can apply. It can only apply to some people mm-hmm. because I, ha- I was lucky enough to have access to that. So I think the most important part and my advice would be, would be to like make number one, raise awareness to combat the stigma Number two, make access to mental health services in a lot of, especially in like impoverished communities is a must. It's a must, must, must. And which is why, of course, I'm, I'm a journalist. So it's like, this is a topic I would love to cover at some point, I, like extensively. Um, of course, it's personal to me too. And I think there's, that it's, that's the advice I can give right now because it is a societal problem.
3: Absolutely. We totally, yeah, absolutely. We agree. Thank you very thank, much, Julie. Yeah, Thank, thank you. you so much. It's been a wonderful interview. Mm-hmm. Thank you for this story, for sharing Ritsky's story, and also and your personal also story. Yeah. yeah. That was
4: great. Yeah.
5: yeah. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you.
1: thank you. Thank you. Let's get into it. Our next story is by a new author here at Life Out Loud, JoJo. Content warning for discussions on disturbing
3: topics. Listener discretion is advised. Joanna is a recent graduate from John Jay College where she majored
4: in criminology and minored in sociology and writing. From a young age, she loved to read and to imagine the places and things she read about. Her reading inspired her to also write her own stories in hopes of taking people to another place the same way her books took her. She has written many short stories over the past years and hopes to eventually finish a mini novella she has been writing. Joanna is now pursuing her law degree in San Diego.
2: Thank you, Anita. Let's take a listen to JoJo's story entitled, Sunshine, My Only Sunshine.
7: The Isles of Marshalls are always messy. Things are never where they're supposed to be. People crowd the aisles. They pace aisle to aisle like animals searching for prey. I'm there only for one thing, a new sweater. In the midst of my search, though, I come across a soft pink pillow on the shelf between the clothes and shoes. Its big yellow letters read, No bond is bigger than that of man and dog. I've walked the aisles of the kennel for 152 days. It's usually quiet, but today is an exception. The noise level has about doubled, letting me know we have new faces. Combinations of dog shit and piss scents tickle my nose, making me wonder why I signed up for this. The smell is never pleasant, but after a few minutes, it always disappears. The barks echo in the room in sync with each other, some even howling. The mornings always require earplugs. You learn that fast. But once everything settles down, they're useless. The space where the intake kennels has five rows with 12 runs, cages in each row. But when we're overcrowded, we house more than 120 dogs. Currently, we have 73. Before I reach the last aisle, I count eight new faces, a Labrador mix, two boxers, three Pitbull puppies, and two coon hounds. But then I notice one last face right before I come to the end of the last aisle. She pokes her head up from the red carpet she lays on, her eyes sad and lonely. She's tanned with a white line coming down from between her eyes that blossom out right before touching the pink of her nose. She doesn't bark or come to the gate. She just lays there, even when I call for her to come to me. The clipboard with her information reads, Date of Arrival, February 19, 2012. Breed, Pitbull color tan and white age three to four she's beautiful yet she has no name just a chip id number i make a mental note to come back and see if i can get her to budge after my morning greetings and walk through i get to work the cages are long split down the middle by a wall with a blue wooden doggy door the doggy door opens from the outside of the kennel using the yellow rope that dangles on the cage door If you pull it, the door opens up like the blade in the guillotine. Each run could fit up to two 60-pound dogs on each side. It normally takes me an hour and a half to clean the kennels on a good day. But today, I know it'll take longer. I estimate a good three hours. There are too many dogs in the kennels, and most of the runs have two or three dogs on each side. That shit always made the job harder. I have to clean the cage while the dog is still there. The hardest part is going in. The second hardest part, coming out. Once I entered a kennel with three 25 pound dogs and one managed to break free. Needless to say, I got my cardio for the day. His little escapade riled up the others. They cheered him with their howls and barking and we ran around the kennel for about 10 minutes before I caught him. The in-between isn't so bad, just difficult to do. I have to take out all sheets, blankets, or carpets that are in the kennel. I have to scoop the poop out into the bucket that sits outside the cage. Then come back with the hose and hose down the kennel, making sure I remove all the stains that could be on the chipped gray walls. I squeegee the floor dry, but not too good because the dogs are always in the way. Finally finished with these daily chores, I head back to visit the new anonymous pit bull. She's lying on an old Mickey Mouse blanket, with a torn-apart stuffed animal next to her. She still looks sad. Maybe she needs some attention. I know that she hasn't touched her food yet. Dinner would be coming in a few hours, and she hasn't even touched breakfast. I open the gate, walk into her kennel, pick up the bowl, and make myself comfortable next to her. Why aren't you eating, I ask, gently scratching her head. Barely turning her head? She just stares at me with her honey-brown eyes, Grabbing a few pieces of kibble in my left hand, I place it up to her nose. She moves her pink nose from left to right, and then she breaks. She licks my hand. I open my hand, and immediately she eats the kibble, leaving nothing but a glop of wetness behind. I'm a little disgusted by the excess of drool that's landed on me. Love dogs hate drool, but I don't mind today. I feed her like that from hand until it's all gone. A week and a half later, she begins to really warm up to me. She approaches the cage door when I call for her, and she wags her tail when I walk by. When I come to visit, her eyes light up as if to say, My friend is here! By now, she has a name. Summer. Sitting here in the kennel like this, just petting her makes me feel at ease, even with all the barking around. No matter how loud it is in here, I always feel at peace next to Summer. Sometimes? We play with the toy donations, and other times she rests her head on my lap as I pet and talk to her. Today I sing to her, sunshine, my only sunshine, you make me happy when skies are gray. She looks at me while I sing, loving and gentle. I watch each day, but no one comes to claim her. All the other dogs who came in with her are gone. Owners returned or others moved to the adoption side for new families to claim. But not Summer. Not yet. When would she be put on the other side for adoption? (sighs) On March 10th, the kennel staff got big news. We'll be receiving 50 more dogs, all seized from a hoarder. What? 50 more dogs? Where exactly are we going to put these dogs? Soon after, Kenneth tells me he has a list of dogs he needs to bring to the back. He doesn't say what for, just starts in on the list. The first name on this list is Sally, the 85-pound black-and-white pit bull from Texas. She's huge, but her heart is even bigger. She loves to play, give kisses, and be spoiled with belly rubs. She's excited as I approach her cage. Her black-and-white tail whips the air, making whooping sounds. I bend down to put the leash on her, and she puts her paw on my shoulder. She just stares. Her eyes show a mixture of concern, fear, and sadness. Does she know something I don't? We walk side by side past the clinic room and straight into the intake room where Kenneth stands by the white door with the staff-only sign. I've seen this door many times before. I begin feeling sick. When Kenneth opens the door, I know what awaits Sally. See, when you apply for a place like this, one of the first five questions they ask is, are you comfortable with euthanasia? Without allowing myself to think too long, I always responded, yes. For two reasons. I need a job, and I love being around animals, especially dogs. The small room has two deep freezers on each side horizontally. Different size muzzles hang next to the door. The shelves hold rolls of garbage bags, jars with clean needles and syringes, and the purple liquid used to end life, humanely. Though nothing is ever humane about taking a life, human or not, I think to myself, clearly exhibiting how I really feel about this issue about my job. I walk in after Kenneth and the lingering scent of death, or perhaps rotting flesh, dances in my nose, causing me to slightly vomit in my mouth. I remember a few days before, when one of the fridges went out, allowing time to finally catch up with the bodies. I swallow the vomit at the back of my throat. I kneel down to take off Sally's leash, petting her gently. She's shivering. Maybe she does know. I place one arm across her chest to grab her left leg and the other arm grabbed her head, moving it away from the view of the needle. With her nose close to my face, she gives me a few kisses and my eyes begin to water. As the deadly mixture is pushed into her veins, her body slowly begins to slump. 85 pounds of dead weight drape across my legs. I lay my head down. I lay her down on the red plaid blanket. As her breathing begins to slow down, I pray for her and hope she'll go to doggy heaven. As I pet her head and muzzle, she gives me one last lick. Then, the light fades from her eyes. I try to fight back the tears, but my heart can't hold it together. It hurts even more to know she's going into a freezer, like she's nothing. Her old family gone, under the impression she would find a new home, not knowing the reality of her fate. I wonder how they'd feel to know this was her fate. I walk back into the clinic area to see what other names are on Kenned's list, my breath quickening. Five names down, and there it is. Summer. What? Why her? I asked, defensive, my voice slightly raised. Summer is friendly and gentle, and she didn't even have a chance over on the adoption side yet. They say she's unadoptable. People aggressive, dog aggressive, food aggressive. What? No, she's not. I had spent enough time with her to know they were all lies. You didn't even give her a chance to get adopted. She's a good dog. All she needs is a chance. Sally, the dog we just put down, was also friendly and gentle, but she had a head the size of a melon and was very muscular. She looked mean, but she wasn't. That sort of thing makes a dog unadoptable around here. I later found out the staff put Sally down simply because they felt no one was going to adopt her because of her size. They also claimed a fear of someone adopting her for a dog fighting because of her size. But deep down, I knew it just came down to the breed thing. Throughout the day, I helped Kenneth put down three more dogs. All pit bulls. Each one breaks my heart more and more. I hated seeing death. I hated being there when the light drifted away. I participated before, but only for the really sick or the really old. This was different. Am I really the only one here not okay with killing perfectly healthy, adoptable dogs? Okay, so we're going to be overcrowded and we need to make room for others. Fine, but do they even know the condition of these others? How do they know those animals are adoptable or not? (sighs) I guess those others have a better chance of adoption because they aren't pit bulls. (sighs) Pit bulls make up the largest percentage of dogs in shelters across the United States. Having the lowest rates of adoption because of the stigma attached to the name they are often awarded with an automatic death sentence. Each year, 1.2 million dogs are euthanized, and 40% of them are pit bulls. This means that nearly half a million pit bull-type dogs are killed in shelters annually. Even if the dog isn't an actual pit bull but resembles one, they are also victims of brutal breed discrimination laws. But before they began getting a bad rap as fighting dogs, dangerous breed, or the only breed with lockjaw... They were nanny dogs. They were literally used to care for young children. And now summer is next. Because no one cares about pit bull eyes. No, I have to do something. I want to take her home, but I live with Shelby and her family. It's not even my own place. Plus, there are already two other dogs there. Would her mom even accept a dog in the house, let alone a pit bull? And even if she did, would I be able to take care of something other than myself? Having a dog is like having a kid. Could I be responsible? I mean, I'd had other dogs before and had given them away to friends because of always moving. I didn't want the same to happen to Summer if I did take her home. If I had to give her away, who would take a pit bull? (sighs) Walking back into the kennels, I contemplate calling Shelby just to ask. But I can't can't bring myself to hit the call. I know I won't be able to handle a no at this moment, but I have to do something. I sit in Summer's kennel, petting her, debating if I should make an attempt to keep her. How? Am I really going to do this? She knows I'm sad. She looks at me with concern. Funny that she's concerned about me at a time like this. I can't bear putting Summer down. We built a bond over these short weeks, How could I kill a friend? And for no reason. (sighs) Later, when it's summer's turn, I walk slowly to her cage. She immediately comes to the gate, not like the first days when she'd barely look up. I stare at her debating what I should do for another two minutes. I don't have it in me. I can't. But what else can I do? This is my job. I said I was okay with this. But it isn't her time yet. Before I even fully know I'm doing it, I walk to Kenneth and I ask if I can keep her. I hear myself say, she's a good dog, and I never saw her show any form of aggression. After some words with the assistant, they say yes. But now what? Where do I take her? I have to call Shelby. I plead with her to ask her mom if I can bring Summer home. I tell her that I know it's a lot, but I'll handle it. She's sweet. No one will even know that she's there. She hangs up to go ask her mom. I sit with Summer, silently praying she will say yes. Whole minutes pass. No call back. No text. Nothing. While I wait, I sit with Summer. I think about how similar Summer's situation is to mine. I think about my time in jail where I, too, was locked in a cage with others. I, too, sat in a cage in wait of whether I'd be free or not. In my own cage, I too was awarded a label. Much like Summer, I was seen as bad. Maybe that's why I'm so close to her, I think. She's the dog version of me, tough on the outside. (sighs) It seems like it's going to be a no. No word from Shelby. I'm devastated. I wanted to allow her to have a second chance, to be allowed to demonstrate her potential as a pet, the potential I knew she had. As I sit there comparing the animal shelter to jail and how both humans and animals get mistreated and are seen as worthless, my emotions begin getting the best of me. I have some hope still that Shelby's mom will say yes, but I've basically come to the conclusion that some people are just cruel and will never know the realities of either place if they have never stepped foot in them. Twenty minutes go by and still no call. Now what? What do I do if I can't take Summer? She's not dying today, that's for sure. I'm not sure how, but I have to fight for her to stay some way, somehow. But what if I can't? What if no one will take her for me? What if she has to stay here even though I'm willing to take her out? No, I'm finding a way to bring her home with me one way or another, I decide. Then it happens. The phone rings. I consider not answering. I don't even want to know if the answer is no. So what'd she say, I ask. No hello, no nothing. And then I wait. She said yes, I hear Shelby say. In that moment, I vowed to never let Summer feel that sense of abandonment again. I'll never let her go, no matter where I move. I know what it's like when you're in a bad position and no one's rooting for you. I promise right then and there that I'll always root for Summer. And that she'll always be with me. <sighs> I walk around with the pillow for an hour, recalling the first day I met Summer. The day I was her savior and the days after in which she'd be mine. It's true. No bond is greater than woman and her dog. The pillow needed an edit, but it reminded me of the promise I made to her, to always have her at my side no matter where I go. Sunshine, my only sunshine.
1: Aww, this story warms my heart so much. I cry tears of joy every time I read it or hear it.
3: Dog stories do that. Um... Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, yeah, it really was so touching. And we actually have Jojo all the way from California right now. She is doing a um, phone interview with us right now. So, Jojo, can you say hi?
0: Hi, how are you
2: guys? Hey. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for joining us tonight and for sharing your story with us.
0: You're welcome. Glad
1: you guys enjoyed it. <laughs> so, Jojo, I love the braiding you incorporate in your piece to make your readers or listeners aware of the stigma that pit bulls face daily. You inform us that each year that 1.2 million dogs are euthanized and 40% of them are pit bulls. That means that nearly half a million pit bull type dogs are killed in shelters annually, even if the dog isn't actually a pit bull, but resembles one. I feel like this information could be shocking to most, especially animal lovers, and that we find out later in your piece that pit bulls were literally used to care for young children. Do you know why this stigma changed for th- this breed? And how did you find out this information?
0: Um, well, um, I think what changed more was, like, because of their, their body structure. They're, they're very—they um, have a lot of agility, and they're very muscular dogs. And if you put them on the treadmill, you can get them to weigh almost 100 pounds. Yeah. So because of that, um, they became fighting dogs. So once they did that, like this, I well, from what I know, like a lot of it started in Miami also because they're completely banned in Miami for that reason for pit bull fighting. Mm. Um, so they just they just ran with the stigma that you know all of them are aggressive, especially because um, the ones that are dog fighting dogs they usually get you know rehabilitated and they can be adopted out. Um, but some people still feel that they're still aggressive. At the end of the day. Um, and most of the information I got was really from um, working with the animals, and I used to work at a, a number of animal shelters before the story, um, and then I did my own personal research as well.
1: Damn, wow. Do yeah. you know when the stigma changed for them? Like, around what time?
0: Um, I'm not too sure, because before the people were actually on on that list, it was actually the the Rottweilers that were on the list before them. Mm. So... It, it, it just it just changes, you know, depending on what dog is is the most aggressive dog to them. Because German Shepherds were even on that list as well. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's so crazy that like we consider them to be aggressive when we're kind of the ones that made them aggressive. Yeah. it's 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 so strange how how like society chooses to view that. And of course, like those natural things, like being able to like make them muscular, and then it's like, oh no like if this like what this dog is capable of like only in its physical appearance which is like so crazy because it's like what about what they're capable what about what they're capable of of like on the inside (laughs) like they're
4: so sweet speaking of judging um people outside this was a very touching troubling and also beautiful connection you described between you and summer you wrote in your story I think about my time in jail where I, too, was locked up in a cage with others. I, too, sat in a cage in wait of whether I'll be free or not. In my own cage, I, too, was awarded a label. Much like Summer, I was seen as bad. The comparison is not just of you and Summer, but pit bulls and those who are incarcerated in general. And this is a stigma. No one takes the time to hear the backstory of either because the label that speaks too loudly bad and no one bothers to question this trademark either. If so, how was your writing process through depicting this connection? How do you think we can steer people away from this label and to look at the bigger picture?
0: Honestly, I think it's just Writing the story and you know maybe just printing it out on a page and hopefully somebody will read it. You know, like maybe in the newspaper. I I don't. I feel like it's very hard for people to get on that page to understand if they've never been in that situation or have never been discriminated in that sense. Where like, I mean, I, I like I own summer. So you know, walking down the street in certain places, people still like, oh my god, it's a pit bull. Let's get away from her. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's really hard to like try to change someone's mind unless you actually probably sit down with them and like, listen, this is, this is what's happening in the world. But it, it, it is really hard because I've tried to do that with a lot of people. But if if, it's, if you don't actually own the animal or been through like similar experiences, yeah. it's so hard for people to get that picture.
2: So would you say then that that was your inspiration for writing the piece or what was your inspiration for writing this piece?
0: Um, It was, it was a little bit of that. And then just, you know just to tell the story of how I got my dog Mm -hmm. you know it was just very touching for me when I when I got her so I was just like you know let me write something about her
1: right I I also wanted to know if you you knew that you made that connection with criminals and uh and bulls and that stigma did you know that you did that when you wrote it or was it did it just happen naturally
0: um originally no I actually didn't know until we actually um read the stories out loud and um professor Madrazo was like oh look you made the connection <laughs> mm-hmm. but i didn't i didn't realize it until until that moment
3: yeah it's it's I, I think that's the part that like it like just like hit me the most is like wow yeah like that 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 connection just so clear when you word it that way mm-hmm. and then like throughout your 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 time with it's summer and it's 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 just ah, it's just so nice seeing you treat her like a regular dog like a regular like a little partner and not just like what the world thinks of her mm-hmm. which is very similar to how people treat like those who are incarcerated like it's always the families that are just like this is just my person like this is just my family member this is just my friend it's yeah. not yeah. this person who's been locked away or has done this thing that you know society deemed was necessary to lock them away for. Mm
2: -hmm. Which is like super special. Thank you. (laughs) So how long have you had Summer for now?
0: Um, it's going on five years. Well six next year.
2: Wow.
1: How is she doing?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um she's doing pretty good. She's adjusted to San Diego pretty well. Um, it took her a little bit though from the time change. But
1: she likes it oh that's wow. great and yeah, my aunt just adopted two bulls actually and they're so adorable <laughs> they're so playful and cute <laughs> yeah they're, and, they're awesome and rip apart my shoes but <laughs>
3: <laughs> um all right well with that we want to thank you so much jojo for being here with us and sharing with us like the story of you and also of summer like so largely of summer
0: Oh, thank
6: you guys so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
3: you. Bye. Bye. Our last story is by an author who is choosing to
1: remain anonymous. Anonymous is a sophomore student at John Jay College, majoring in criminology with minors in English and psychology. Born in 1998, this author has been kicking it back with a Crayola crayon and anything that would transcribe their letters since they were 10. While they haven't written anything in a while, their passion for writing was reignited upon taking Professor Madrazo's creative nonfiction course, where the story was birthed. Their hobbies include cracking jokes, visiting museums, and writing their life story. You can catch Anonymous hanging around John Jay or eating something that's probably not good for their health
2: anywhere around the city. If it has avocados, they're down. Thank you, Samantha. Let's take a listen to Anonymous's piece entitled, Can I Be Her?
8: My eyes dart across the room. I don't see any familiar faces, at all. I stop looking around until, I'm sitting in my math class at John Jay when she walks through the yellow door. She has long, dark black hair with bright purple ends. Intriguing. I've always found people with colorful hair to be adventurous. I remember when I lost a bet in fifth grade and had to dye my hair red. I'd cried in the salon chair, so I only got one highlight and decided I would settle for blonde. Should I talk to her? I think to myself. My mom says I need to make more friends, but the straight line painted across her face intimidates me. I say nothing, and for the rest of class, I stare at the whiteboard, trying to ignore the fact that I have zero friends. Actually, I do have one friend. Zoe. I met her last semester in my English class. She's the type of girl who likes simple things. We're a lot alike. Our favorite candy is Sour Patch Kids, and we both enjoy watching The Office and playing soccer. She knows just what to say to make me laugh, like the time her and I were sitting in our winter course. I don't even want to be here, I'd said. And we have to write 20 pages? That's so much, I say to her. I'm telling you, bro, if you bullshit that and just write some random big words throughout it, you'll be fine. She goes on. Seriously, he's going to be like, you are very smart. She is mocking his Italian accent in a voice that sounds like Gru from Despicable Me. She was right. I did fine on that paper. Most days, we'd hang around John Jay or go get four for $4 meals from Wendy's before taking the A-train downtown and laughing about our inside jokes. Like how we said the guy that sat in front of us in class, the guy who always came to class, always wearing a black leather jacket and multiple watches was a secret spy. Hey, I'd said once, At least we know if there's ever a school shooter, we got him to save us. We joke about other people all the time, but mostly just because we don't know any other people. While I continue to stare at the whiteboard, I can hear the girl with the purple hair talking in the back of the room. Ugh, I realize she's one of those people. Do you really want to be friends with someone who doesn't seem to care about school? You're better than this. Maybe I just tell myself that, though. Five days later, I'm sitting in a different classroom. I look behind me, and sure enough, I find the girl with the purple hair. Of course she's sitting in the back. She's so pretty, though. Talk to her. But just as I'm about to get the guts to give up again, she suddenly turns to me. Hey, I have you in my math class, she says. Oh, yeah. I shrug like I barely noticed. You sit in the back, right? Yeah, I'm Angelina. She was everything I imagined a New Yorker to be. Rude face, casual... Skinny jeans, dusty rose bomber jacket, white Nikes, and a voice with one of those, hey, I'm walking here, kind of tones. My cheeks light up like Rudolph's nose as she starts talking to me about a professor. I'm in trouble, I think to myself. You cannot have a crush on this girl. Although, this isn't the first time I've liked a girl. My friends back in Michigan and I are preparing to head to Italy and Greece for two weeks as a part of Everest High School's student abroad program. As the students from Everest wait in Terminal C at Detroit Metro Airport, someone I have never seen before steals my attention. Who is that? I turn to my best friend Maria and ask, Dude, that's Mrs. B's niece, Cindy. She says it as if I'm supposed to know that already. Remember, she was telling us about her last week in class? Oh yeah, I say. Remember, she told us, keep an eye out for Cindy. She always wears a California Republic hat. I look back and find Cindy standing next to the information desk in a California Republic hat, bootcut jeans, a black zip-up North face, and black Nikes. I spend the trip with Maria and Linda running around Athens getting fish pedicures, shopping for t-shirts that say grease, and arguing over who gets to take the first shower. And one day, when I find myself alone in a mini-mart, I happen to see Cindy again, who's mostly been doing her own thing. I watch her through the cracks in the shelves as I hide my face behind two Pringle cans. Later, we all exchanged Snapchats while we sat in the lobby of the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. Toward the end of the trip one day, as we sat in the back of the bus, Maria says, Guys, you know Cindy is gay? Linda joins in. I know. I don't want to Snapchat her. I don't want her to develop some weird crush on me, she says. I awkwardly laugh along and pretend to agree. I act like I won't Snapchat her either. But I do. A lot. As the weeks go on, Cindy and I continue to talk all day, every day, about anything and everything. I sit next to Maria in psych class and lie when she asks why I'm smiling while I look at my phone. Just some guy I met on Tinder, I say. One night, I get a text from Maria that reads, What the hell is this? Soon followed a screenshot of my recent Instagram post, under which Cindy had left a heart eye emoji. What's the big deal? I ask. Why are you being gay with her? Maria asks back. Later, Cindy tags along to dinner after my graduation. My older sister eyes her up, then me, then Cindy again. To her daughters, ages 5 and 7, my nieces, she says loudly and out of nowhere, Girls only date guys. Got it. Thanks. I let things go with Cindy. She doesn't trust that I'm bisexual. And to be honest, neither do I. (sighs) As I stare at Angelina, I get lost in her cloudless sky blue eyes. Oh my god, stop, I tell myself. She reminds me of my sister. Damn, that's a turn-off. Actually, this is good. Think about your sister, and then when you look at Angelina, you won't secretly wish you were curled up next to her watching Netflix. But I do wish that. And maybe, maybe that's actually okay. Is it? I mean, Zoe dates girls. Why is it a big deal that I do? Your best friend here on campus dates girls. Why can't you? At the very least, we become friends in the next few weeks. Really good friends! I finally have another friend! Who cares if I have a crush on her? When I'm not with Zoe, I'm with Angelina. Every Tuesday after class, we start going to her mom's job to hang out around the area. We run around the city eating whatever our bodies are craving. Waffles from the waffle car are our go-to, and sometimes Helen Hardy. We shop in the clearance section of Forever 21 and window shop for bras from Victoria's Secret. We spend our breaks watching Family Guy in the atrium and procrastinating on our homework, then proceeding to cry about it on FaceTime at 2 a.m. I introduce Zoe and Angelina, and we become friends. Zoe even joins our 2 a.m. FaceTime sometimes, and I'm so happy! Finally, I have a group of friends! I have to tell my mom I'm really making it in New York City, I think. And everyone's so open here! Nothing like Michigan. No one will even care if I have a crush on Angelina. I've been waiting for this life, I think to myself really waiting for it and finally i have it until the day zoe says the thing i should have said a long time ago dude she says one morning when it's just me and her like the old days when it was always just me and her i had the biggest crush on this girl she's always making fun of people she's so rude but she's funny she has a resting bitch face so on the rare occasion she smiles i know it's genuine and i can't help but smile too as zoe describes this girl angelina pops into my head Reluctantly, I ask, oh, so who is she? It's, uh, Angelina, she says. My heart drops to my stomach. That makes two of us, I want to say. I have to say something. Should I say something? I know you guys be hanging out after classes and shit. Zoe is still talking. What do you think if I start talking to her? Go for it, dude, I struggle to say, but with no visible or audible hesitation. Go for it. Thanks, dude. See you later, Zoe says as she hits my back and takes off towards 58th Street. I stand outside Starbucks, alone again. I should have known. I think about the countless times I stared at Angelina as she was staring at Zoe. I guess they'll be perfect for each other. I know I have no chance. I sigh as I walk to the train. I lay off as I watch Zoe and Angelina get closer and closer. I begin to notice Angelina smiling more often throughout the months. When I see the difference in the way Angelina looks at me, and the way she looks at Zoe, it makes me wish I would have said something sooner. They're dating now, but like, that's fine. We're all still friends and hang out all the time. And sure, it's hard to watch them kiss, and to see the teeth marks on Angelina's neck. And sure, it's hard to stop wishing that they were left there by my teeth. But really, it's fine, right? Angelina never liked me anyway. We were just friends. This is what you wanted, right? Friends, and now you have them. Be appreciative, I scold myself. (sighs) One day, when Zoe's not around though, Angelina and I end up in my room. She lays herself across the right side of my bed and pulls up the notebook on her laptop. There's no place else for me to go, so... I lay next to her as the movie begins to play. No big deal, friends watch movies together, We used to always watch Family Guy at school. What's the big deal? Stop. But when the screen shows Allie leaving Noah, Angelina suddenly grabs my arm. At the touch of her hands on my body, my heart accelerates. My skin begins to look like a raw turkey. How do you stop goosebumps? How do you stop? Think about Zoe. Don't ruin this. She was your first friend here. She... Stop. But then, I don't stop anything. I shut my mind down, roll my body across Angelina's, and hold her. And here we are. Me and the girl with the bright purple ends in her hair. Me and the girl from my math class. Me and the girl dating my friend, curled up together, watching Netflix.
2: Aww. <laughs> Uh, It's so cute. Amazing. Oh, my God. This was such a sweet and relatable piece that made me put my hand over my heart and say, (laughs) aw. So, firstly, I have to ask, what happened next? So, Zoe and Angelina are dating, and you're very valiantly choosing not to disturb that. But at the end, we see your choice was affected by someone else. You know, because unknowingly, perhaps, Angelina is affecting your friendship with both people in a big way. So, like, what if anything happens with this triangle?
8: well um, <laughs> i mean we're all still friends and everything and i haven't said anything like i still haven't told angelina like how i feel about her and i we definitely didn't tell her girlfriend like we're getting a little too close there but mm-hmm. i don't know i like i did have a crush on her and like at the end of the day there are still feelings there but you know i'm really good friends with Zoe and I'm really good friends with Angelina so I, I look at how like happy they are together you know and I don't want to mess that up in any way so and I like where we are as friends so you know I just just stay quiet and you know we are we are how we are as friends and it Good so far, so good. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Mm. So like,
3: like nothing else happened.
8: <laughs> <laughs> I have that. <to> <laughs> I'm um, listening on me. I mean, if nothing, you're telling no. the truth, then <laughs> no. Um, yeah, nothing else happened. I mean, we cool. just got up. I walked to the train station. I was like, okay, bye, and then that was that was that. Aww. And um, Aww. I Aww. mean, it, it's hard too because um. It's really cute because her girlfriend is, like, really, you know, how, like, when you're in a relationship, you're, like, really protective of your significant other. Mm-hmm. So, like, we'll all be chilling on, like, the couches on, on John Jay or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, we're all, like, pretty close. I'll be, I'll lean on Angelina's shoulder or something. And, like, so will <laughs> look at me and she's, like, you're the only person I trust to touch her. <laughs> like, your head is down her shoulder. It's not a big deal. But if I saw anybody else doing that, I would be, <laughs> like, oh, hell no. Uh-oh. So I'm just, like. <laughs> 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 point <Gulps>. taken. <laughs> so swept going yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, well, well. Yeah. I don't think um nothing is yeah. gonna happen.
3: That's kind of mm-hmm. I, it. It's weird because I feel like as listeners we're like torn because it's like no, but like duh, like don't do anything like this is a relationship <sighs> like this is a friendship yeah. too. But we're also
1: like rooting for you the whole time. <laughs> right, yeah. like, tell her, just tell her, just. Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? And you never really get the perspective of the cheater, so like, yeah, it's like half we're rooting for you because you're like, yes, you're so in love, and or whatever, you really like this girl. Damn, care. <laughs> <laughs> you really like this girl, but it, it's wrong in a way, so it, yeah. it like sucks.
8: Yeah,
2: yeah. And like, you want her to be happy in her relationship, mm. but we want you to be happy too. Yeah. We literally <laughs> feel, we
1: literally feel exactly the way you feel. So yeah.
2: torn. Yeah, <laughs>
1: like we want you to be happy in crush-ship
3: and also friendship so it's like yeah
2: because this piece so much it's so very clear that this piece is really about you know just this intense friendship and how much this has really improved your life and your you know the life that you're building here in new york city and Mm -hmm. it's giving you like a little bit of a family here but then it's also like oh (laughs) do
1: it (laughs) um speaking of new york city um in the story you say i'm really making it in new york city i think and everyone's so open here nothing like michigan No one will ever care if I have a crush on Angelina. I've been waiting for this my whole life. I think to myself really waiting for it and finally I have it. You were so happy to have these two friends. A very common occurrence throughout this piece is the juxtaposition between how people are here and Michigan and you convey this seesaw of confusion throughout it. You're free to like a girl here just not that girl because she's a friend. You have lots of friends in Michigan but they wouldn't have been accepting of your sexuality as a sophomore now what's it been like to navigate this bittersweet in this new place good question
3: (laughs) Um, (laughs) I ask you this all the time and I just want you to share it
8: well um, I think like I'm really glad that I chose out of all the places to go to college here because it's really helped me on this journey because being in Michigan like there weren't many I didn't know a lot of people um like all of my friends and everyone in my family was straight they are straight so I never really knew that was I don't want to say I didn't know it, it was a thing but like an option for me I wasn't really I was like oh like all my friends have boyfriends my sister is always bringing guys to the house so you know I don't let me just keep doing what I'm doing and then as I briefly mentioned in my story when I went on the study abroad trip and I met Cindy like I kind of realized like oh there's something else here but I always questioned it like is that okay for me to do because I'm the type of person who's always worrying about other people are going to think what my family's going to think so it really stopped me from pursuing anything so then when I came here like probably all of my friends are gay or not Mm -hmm. straight and especially at life out loud (laughs) yeah so it just made me realize like okay (laughs) this isn't as big of a deal as i've made it up to be and as i maybe thought it is and um so it's definitely been helpful to just be around more people who are and have more supportive people because like my friends in our high school nobody was gay so everybody was even when i was kind of talking to that girl people were like giving me crap about it and so having friends here who get that and they are as well is like really helpful so
3: yeah that's awesome i feel like everyone kind of whenever we're from other places i feel like coming from another place probably more suburban or or rural place Mm -hmm. than coming to the city it's like this like shock and awe of like look at all these like yeah it kind of, like, mm-hmm. options and, and also seeing like i'm from
1: now. i'm from Staten island and like that's like a very suburban part of new york and mm-hmm. like even though it's still new york it's still pretty unaccepted to be to be gay mm-hmm. there um so yeah like i i've had the same very similar experience i always thought it was wrong to be to be that way to ever feel that way so if i ever did i would shut it off be like mm-hmm. no i can't explore that because that's wrong i'm supposed yeah. to be dating guys and that's and it's it's really upsetting that these towns haven't developed a modern thinking process of of being who you are and
2: it's, right. it's just mm-hmm. really really hopefully it's, that'll hopefully that'll change i mean i feel like now that we have um you know the marriage law you know i'm really hoping that that's something mm-hmm. that's going to become Something more accepted for younger. I feel like we were progressing towards yeah. that, mm-hmm. but
1: ever since unfortunately lost election, right. I feel like we're <laughs> he who shall not regressing again. Yeah. We're regressing back. Yeah. Um. I hope that's not true. So really. yeah, I know, but like it just feels that way. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah. So even now, like I really feel bad for like people who who were my age, like like eighteen, like when you really really started to think I can come out now, they're probably mm. like really pushing back now because yeah of where we are. And it's really sad. I'm like about yeah. to cry about it. I <laughs> <I'm like laughs> cry about this all the time.
8: It's interesting to me because when my brother, who's three years younger than me, we he goes to the high school that I was at now. And like I said, when I was going there, nobody was gay. And now, a lot of people that he's friends with, like, oh. are bisexual okay. or even yeah. yeah, yeah. someone who's trans. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I guess like now there are more people who are going to that school becoming more comfortable with Um, being themselves so um yeah i don't
3: know i just think it's so interesting to see like how kind of like like there's two sides to it like when we're in this political climate like sometimes it's like so difficult to like like be able to be who you want to be when it goes against Mm -hmm. what this main power is like telling you but -hmm. then also it kind of drives people to like rebel more. Right. I was gonna say
2: I feel like there's been a big uprising actually of people feeling emboldened by this Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. to come out and and share their stories more. I feel like it's done that but like still secretly deep down we're all your
6: full self. Oh, absolutely. We're <laughs> oh, in, in every way
3: and like in like the ways of identity mm-hmm. and ways of mm-hmm. immigration and mm-hmm. ways of like being people with uteruses and like yep. yeah. this is being <laughs> yeah. politicized and mm-hmm. it's yeah. the yeah. strangest thing. Misogyny is so rampant. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's back strange. to friendship.
2: Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask though since your experiences here in New York, have you felt comfortable? bringing this up with any of your friends from home or your family or is this still mostly
8: part of your life here? Um, I feel like I kind of I'm living two lives. Like mm-hmm. I come here and I really am able to be myself and be yeah. because this is a, a part of me that I feel really comfortable exploring here. Right, um, And I just don't feel as comfortable in Michigan. I mean the last conversation um because I'm still kind of going through this journey of like being comfortable with it and like figuring it all out so it's been a process and the last time I spoke with my family about it was I mean it was like last summer but Mm -hmm. I was still kind of having these feelings of confusion but I wanted to like talk with them and at that point it was kind of like they were like oh so this might be a thing for you and i was like this is just a phase
1: <laughs> for you i'm still hearing that from my mom when yeah. i'm 23 years old gonna be 24 okay <laughs> yeah so i like i have had some yeah. people, Never gonna
8: end. like i was talking to somebody and they're like oh yeah that it's probably just rubs off on you from being in new york and mm. so but you know, I know right? wow. yeah wow. for me it was that yeah. i went to tanzania where being uh, being gay is
1: you can go to jail
6: it's so to
1: but if somehow going to tanzania rubbed off on me for being gay like yeah, yeah. but just, i mean they they will make up every they, what they're doing though is they're they're trying to make themselves feel more comfortable mm-hmm. with it mm-hmm. they're trying to make themselves yeah. be like okay this is don't panic this it is, is just their, their minds down. Mind yeah. yeah they're yeah. like
8: well my actually my parents have been quite supportive of it. Um oh, because definitely. even when I remember having a conversation at the dinner table one day about we were all it was me and my dad and my brother and we were just talking about like, oh, because I had just come back from being in New York for a long time. I was back in Michigan and we were talking like, oh is anybody dating? Like if, mm-hmm. have you found anybody and any any guys or like any guys or girls and mm-hmm. um I was talking to my brother and I was like, So Ben, any girls? And he's like, no I'm like, any guys? And he's like, I'm not gay and then he was like, any girls? And I was like <laughs> actually um, you know I've been thinking about it and they were really like, pretty open about it and my dad actually wanted like he's been <laughs> it's so like creepy but I know he's doing it in a sweet way but he always tells me like oh my god I've seen this girl I know you were like her so I'm trying to he's like trying to get me somebody
6: <laughs> Like, that's the <laughs> best reaction you that's can so ever cute. ask for <laughs> from a parent. That's so, it's so cute. It's
3: like, she lives in Michigan, but you yeah. guys can figure something out. Right. But he'll go Aww. up to, like,
8: girls who, like, girls my age that are working in Target or something and be like, are you gay? Like, Aww, and then look at him. That's so adorable. That reminds me of my girlfriend's
1: dad. Like, he's went to her to cubby hole and, like, <laughs> sat me. down Aww. with, like, other lesbians and be like, my daughter's gay. What <laughs> <laughs> advice do you have? <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> So yeah. Yeah. It reminds
3: me, it's it's not at all relating. We're totally like getting off topic. But it reminds me of like my dad dealing with me being vegetarian. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is kind of like having an entirely different lifestyle than they're kinda yeah. used yeah. to you having. Mm-hmm. It's the weirdest thing. I'm not comparing yeah. it, yeah. but yeah. I'm comparing no. it.
7: It's yeah, really no, it like, really is though. I was
2: vegetarian for six years, and like my family, especially my godchildren's family and everything, pretty much didn't know what to do with it. And they'd yes. be like, "So asparagus and bread? Like that's all they serve <laughs> yeah. me at meals and everything because they couldn't wrap around." Mm-hmm. I was like, "You can just cook. Like I'll, mm-hmm. I'll eat what I'm going to eat or <laughs> not eat. Like people don't know what to do with yeah. change.
8: Yeah. yeah, you know. Well, right. uh, yeah. That's why I think it's cool that people at my brother's school have like he's met people because he's dated. Um, he was dating this girl who was bisexual. My mom mm-hmm. was like." kind of like iffy about it because she like flabber, yeah. she like doesn't understand it um mm-hmm. so trying to explain that to her um and then she was kind of like okay like you know iffy about it but now that she's trying to wrap her head around it she's at the end of the day you know she i'm fortunate enough that she's like the type of parent who's like oh you know yeah. i want what's hap- what's best mm-hmm. for you as long yeah, as you're whatever, happy yeah type thing That's you know great. and even i've had like my oldest sister who's not as supportive of it like my brother was telling me, you know, like at the end of the day, you know, if like the people who matter, like they're not going to say anything. Like if they're if they're saying stuff to you like derogatory things, you know, like they don't like don't worry about it because they don't really yeah. they shouldn't matter to you. So he yeah. was, you know, I had like a nice um I like one night it was me and my brother and my sister, both my brothers, my sister, and my dad and we all just kind of like talked about it and like kind of just had this conversation, not even just about me um but just about like people like the lgbtq plus community like that's a thing now you know and like trying to have like everybody get more comfortable about it so it's been i think the more that i go on this journey like i'm gonna start taking like my family on this journey as well i mean we have a few of my cousins are but it's kind of like they're like distant so to have i i'm kind of scared of like the reaction of people like my aunts and uncles and stuff but um i don't know yeah no it's
3: like yeah it's you're just i like that you're in these little baby steps like when you came in Mm -hmm. here i was like hey gaby (laughs) because it's just it's just like well because we're like we're friends like i don't mean that in a strange way um because it's just very very like it's just like so interesting to like Mm -hmm. see your journey right now like in these little little, like baby steps and stuff as you're like Mm -hmm. just getting into this and i'm just like it's really special that you get to experience this in somewhere so like open mm-hmm. where this is like pretty pretty great um so yeah with that do you have anything that you want
8: for re- like l- readers to take away or listeners to take away from the story um I mean I would just say that and it's probably easier said than done but and I should probably take my own advice but you know mm-hmm. don't listen or to what other people say you know like if don't let other people think, about whatever you're going through or whatever it is like it shouldn't matter because at the end of the day like you know you you're here to please yourself like you're the one laying your head down on the pillow at night like that's a person that you need to make happy is you so whoever's saying things to you like uh uh-uh, you need to do what makes you happy like if it makes you happy keep doing what you're doing because fuck what everybody else thinks that's it. yeah, so Yeah. i think true. that's
1: a perfect way to end yeah. <laughs> with that Thank you, Anonymous. Yes, thank thank you you for coming in. Thank you for having me. That concludes our fourth episode of the season, Friend of Mine. We are also excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction.
4: You can always find out more at lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes,
2: SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some more behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them
3: to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good (laughs)
6: night!